Bots on the internet can be malicious, helpful, and everything in between. A bot that responds to all of your tweets might call you a socialist, and that's definitely malicious. Google crawls the web to index Google search. That's definitely helpful. Social media marketing bots schedule 200 Twitter posts to go out throughout the day. That's either a little annoying or a little helpful, depending on who you are. Bots are being used to amplify political viewpoints. An amplified viewpoint can serve as a gravity well for like-minded individuals and help a sparsely supported political cause find its footing. Sometimes that amplified viewpoint is completely fictional or unfalsifiable. Real people believe that Hillary Clinton is a lizard alien because they have seen that story shared by enough Twitter bots. So-called fake news is a topic that has been discussed on so many other podcasts. What is not reported is the connection between link bait and advertising fraud. When a botnet is able to make an article go viral, thousands of people organically click on the link to that article. That organic traffic is used to launder fake clicks. These bots that are spreading, quote, fake news, they might be controlled by conspiratorial Russian hackers. But it doesn't actually have to be that complicated. Anyone who wants to make money from online advertising fraud is incentivized to make salacious media, whether it is real or fake. Samuel Woolley is the director of research at Political Bots, he works with Jigsaw, which is a division of Alphabet, formerly known as Google, that seeks to make the internet safer. In today's episode, we talk about political bots, advertising fraud, and the connection between the two. Also, Software Engineering Daily is having our third meetup, Wednesday, May 3rd, at Galvanize in San Francisco. The theme of this meetup is fraud and risk in software. We will have great food, engaging speakers, and a friendly intellectual atmosphere. If you like this episode about ad fraud, well, it's related to ad fraud, you'll definitely like the talk that Shalin Dar is giving at this meetup. To find out more, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup, and let's get on to this episode. Samuel Woolley is the director of research at Political Bots. Samuel, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. You are part of a research team that is investigating the impact of computational propaganda. What is computational propaganda? Computational propaganda is basically sort of the confluence of automation algorithms and big data used over social media and attempts to manipulate public opinion. A more simple way of putting that is, is to say that it is the way that uh, different political actors, from campaigns to hacking collectives, use things like social media bots in attempts to drive up traffic or to amplify certain perspectives. Give a few examples. Sure. So during the U.S. presidential election, there was several different instances where bots were used surrounding a particular controversy uh, to make different actors look bad. So there was a, a case where a bunch of Twitter bots were launched to tell people to report Ted Cruz to the FCC for using robo-dialing uh, techniques that were outlawed, uh, which so it was kind of a bots-on-bots -bots situation. Um, in the days preceding the election, uh, the U.S. election, that is, our research team did research that found that there was 
nearly, you know, there was hundreds of thousands of bots tweeting in support of Donald Trump that, uh, Trump bots outnumbered Clinton bots at a rate of five to one, though there was definitely some Clinton bots in there as well. Um, and that a lot of these, these accounts were being used to send out, uh, things like misleading news stories or memes that said, for instance, things like, you can now vote for t- by text. So trying to get the, uh, one or the other side to, to mess up and, uh, not vote. How long has computational propaganda been on the internet? We have been tracking the use of, of propaganda over, over Twitter and Facebook. So as long as both of those sites have been around, there's been some attempts to manipulate, uh, public opinion using automated techniques or software driven techniques. Um, that said, these, the use of bots for, for various, for various means, uh, has existed since the internet was around and it's been around on IRC. And, um, something that's really important to point out is that the use of automated software to try to get people to do things, uh, comes from marketing and from commercial purposes. So it kind of started there with spam and, uh, email spam and other things. And, and then the use of, um, bots on social media that actually look like real people is a more new thing that, that kind of began around 2010. Uh, so building out profiles, um, that mimic real people or that are built to send out specific links or, uh, specific content around, around a topic, um, or just to drive up, uh, a hashtags numbers or, or to manufacture a hashtag. Uh, that's, that's a newer thing. When you take a hotly contested subject like who we should elect for president people have different interpretations of the facts what's the difference between someone who is advocating an unusual interpretation of the facts and someone who is spreading computational propaganda there's a big difference i don't think that this it doesn't have to do with with opinions about how facts are presented it has a lot more to do with the rate at which uh, content is being served to people over social media. So it's sort of like, um, I use the, the phrase amplifying information or another way that I've had it put to me by people who build these bots is, is megaphoning information. So um, while one person might, might use their, their own Twitter account to send out any variety of a story they consider news, whether it's, it's on the right or the left or in between, um, the difference with computational propaganda is that that person would then go and buy hundreds, if not thousands of, of proxy accounts on a site like Twitter or 10 or 20 accounts on a site like Facebook, and then use those accounts to generate a massive amount of traffic on that same story in an attempt to make it look more grassroots when in fact it's actually more like AstroTurf. We've had cloud computing for a while. We've had good scripting tools, high-level machine learning tools for a while. These are the tools that make bots so easy to scale. Why has it taken so long for these bots to start getting attention? Uh, I think the simple answer is that political campaigns and political actors are about 10 years behind um, commercial actors and, and just, you know, software engineers in general. So uh, conversations about how Howard Dean and then Barack Obama made use of, of uh, 
of digital techniques were, were also kind of funny because a lot of those techniques had been used uh, in the years preceding those elections. It's the same thing with bots. Um, it's just taken a while to, to, for, for, for public opinion to swing enough towards concern about, uh, information on social media and where it comes from, uh, that now we're just seeing to start to, starting to see uh, an uptick, but there's something else as well. Uh, there are there's been several events, Brexit, um, the U.S. presidential election, and, and now elections coming up in France and Germany, where people are seeing a a larger degree of um, bot driven information sharing, and there there's a general fear that the content that is spread by by these political bots uh, has specific effects on outcomes or in other words that, you know, there's potential that aspects of Brexit being pushed through or of Donald Trump getting elected were affected by the spread of computational propaganda. And so those big events have also led to a lot more public awareness and a lot more, uh, a lot more concern. Does a hosting provider like AWS police their servers for bots? I think most savvy, uh, most most savvy hosting providers do do police servers for bots, and and also I think going further, um, you know the social media companies themselves police for bots, and and they're 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 doing a lot of work to try to get rid of of malicious content on their platforms, but there is also a real danger in uh, for these companies in in policing content. Uh, they've, they've sold themselves as technology companies. And when they get into policing content, they're judging free speech. And in America, free speech is a sort of, it's an unalienable right. Um, and the other thing about it is, is that, uh, there's, there's definite legal implications for, for media company, for companies like social, sorry, for companies like Facebook and Twitter, uh, beginning to act like media companies. Uh, there'll be a lot of repercussions. If I'm hearing what you're saying correctly, what concerns you is not the validity of the information that's being spread through Twitter or Facebook or other means. It's the amplification of that information uh, out of proportion with the uh, the 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 velocity of uh, true public opinion of humans. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think there's, there's, that's definitely, that's accurate. I, I think that it's, it's, it's a subject, it's a much more subjective practice to, to be, to, to police, um, the content and, and the arguments made in content. Um, although I do think there, there are metrics for determining whether or not certain information is vetted properly or comes from, from empirical evidence. Uh, our project though is more concerned with, with, one big thing, and the one big thing we're concerned with is the use of automation in spreading info. Uh, the use of automation in spreading information. Uh, and so, when we think about when we think about political bots, we're thinking about you know automated accounts that create manipulated information flows. I remember my second or third internship doing software engineering. I wrote automated tests to test how a web application worked 
And that work was something that could have you know, been classified as a bot, but the behavior that I was programming into the bot could have been a human. There was no difference between the mouse movements and the clicking and you know to the to the logging system uh, unless I had a you know, maybe a key logger or something that could tell exactly how my mouse was moving around the screen I mean even then I could have easily recorded my own mouse movement and trained a machine learning model to act just like I do how do companies whether we're talking about Twitter or Amazon how do they know who is a bot and who is a human that's a really good question so I think that there's a couple different metrics that that companies can look at to figure out that an, an account is either a bot or a human. And the three broad categories those metrics lie in are uh, temporal signals, so how often an account is tweeting, um, uh, how regularly an account is tweeting. Is it on a is it on a very strict time schedule? Uh, if we start to parse parse the bot's behavior, can we tell that it is behaving in a robotic way? in a way that does not match up with, you know, human behavior. Um, another way is uh, network signals. So looking at who the bot tends to retweet, like, follow, who it has relationships with on social media. A lot of times bots exist on the tangents of a social network. Um, they often are built in what's called a botnet to, to reproduce content from the other profiles or, uh, in order to give, uh, the illusion of legitimacy. So to make it look as if the, the account has more followers that are real than it actually does when in fact all the followers are just other bots that have been built for that purpose. Um, and so network, network signals are, are very important. Um, and then the last one is, is semantic signals. Uh, and so thinking through that, it's what, what the content is. Um, uh, and so if the content is, is really rote, if it appears as the same content over and over and over again, or if it's only, sh if the account is only sharing links, um, and, or if the account is only sharing content on one issue, um, or if when, in, when the account is engaged in conversation with a human user, uh, if it does not if the conversation doesn't hold up for more than a few lines, then you can tell that more than likely the account's a bot. And uh, moreover, I think that when you look at these three signals lined up and aspects of these three signals, you know, there's, there's so many other different things that I haven't mentioned, but when you, when you line them all up, you can really start to identify accounts because maybe they'll be able to get around, you know, the, the network uh, signal, but they won't be able to get around the temporal or the semantic signal. Uh, and so that there's definite ways of, of catching bots. So let's take all three of those. Okay, so you've got the temporal, the network structure, and the semantic. The temporal, there are social media marketing managers who schedule 200 Twitter posts to go out throughout the day using Buffer, or now you can use the functionality built into Twitter. So temporal doesn't seem like a reliable way of doing it to me. I think more and more people are getting to where they like to schedule lots of Twitter posts because they're like, okay, I need to be hygienic on Twitter. I can't just post 200 things at once, so I'm just going to schedule it. And I think the, the the tools are headed towards the direction of democratizing that. The network structure, 
if you've got bots that are just interacting with each other and you know they're not colliding with the real network as much those bots wouldn't concern me as much because who cares about those i mean they're just interacting with each other maybe they're amplifying the signal among each other maybe they're confusing twitter's algorithms but twitter should be able to detect that they're on the margins of the network so those probably don't matter and yet we are engaging with these bots so i'm not sure if the network structure i mean basically the if the bots are interacting with humans that is what what is concerning so i mean i guess you could imagine a scenario where you've got a bot that is interacting with a bunch of i don't know i'm not sure i'm not the network structure one seems tough to me but okay may i'll give you that maybe that one's plausible the semantic one i've got people i know from high school where i see the information or or yeah, people I know from high school, let's go with that. Um, that's an anonymizing. The stuff that they post is as idiotic and uh, fact, uh, f- you know, n- not fact-holding, and uh, it looks like stuff that would a, that a bot would post. I'm like, this is so idiotic, and yet I know you're a person because I went to high school with you. So the semantic analysis, I, like, I'm not sure I buy that either because, you know, we, and I did a, I did a show with... Um, Somebody from Robbie from Automated Insights, who you know that company just they generate they generate content from you know like you give them a stock ticker history or a uh, you know the 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 numerical history of of a baseball game like this person hit you know a, a home run at this point in the game and the bot will write. Uh, you know, a, a detailed news article based on that numerical data, and they've surveyed people. The people can't tell one from the other, um, and so well, I guess where I'm going with this is none of those signals that you just described to me are plausible enough to me that you could actually use them to reliably detect bots on an automated basis. Right. Well, I think what you've done is is sort of break them apart into singular things on their own. And again, so I think I think that when combined, all three together tend to catch a lot more accounts than any one on its own. And so, so your analysis of like talking through like each one, uh, you have fair points. But what I'm saying here is that when all three are combined, there is a greater chance of 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 finding automated accounts. That said, it's an imperfect method. There are other ways that you can you can look into whether an account is a bot or is software driven or not. Um, when people time their tweets, you know, they're still using software to to get tweets out there. The difference is that a lot of times the the content that they're generating is self-generated. It's not generated using a database. Um, and so that's a little different, but a lot of the time, if someone's using if this, then that, or during the election, a lot of people are using Patriot Journalist Network. Um, the content is created by, by means of, of the bot. So the bot searches for the content and then provides it for the account. Um, and you can see using a few different techniques, um, who the client is that's or where the client is tweeting from so the question is are they tweeting from twitter uh are they tweeting from twitter for business are they tweeting from you know um the api or are they using another client to to tweet and to automate their 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 presence 
Uh, and so one of the things that we've done is unpacked that, that and been able to say, wow, like we can see that most of the time this account is tweeting from if this, then that. So it's done 30,000 tweets from if this, then that. And then one time in the last few days, it's signed on to Twitter and done a few, uh, done a few human tweets. Um, and so that's one way that we've, we've also looked at this. Uh, there's, there's a few other things that, that people can do. And, and I think that they get at like points that you made about whether or not the interaction is the most important thing or not. And I think I'd actually disagree with that. I wouldn't say that it, bots interacting with people is the most important aspect of what a bot can do. Um, I think that social media companies are particularly concerned with manufactured, basically manufactured ideas or manufactured thought streams. And so bots like that, there's a question of means and ends. So what do you, what, what you have the bot, which is your means, but then what are you attempting to have the bot do? Are you attempting the bot to to have the bot manipulate public opinion directly. So talk to people and share articles amongst a community and attempt to get them to change the way they think. Or are you doing something a bit more subtle with the goal of manipulating a hashtag, creating a hashtag, basically getting a hashtag to trend or getting something to show up in the newsfeed at a higher rate or something which is completely different? Are you, are you trying to create confusion? is the goal of building your botnet to create confusion rather than to change people's perspective of facts. And I think that that latter thing, creating confusion, is is something that we are seeing on a large scale in Eastern European countries like the Ukraine and Poland. Uh, we're seeing bots being used to basically like cause confusion so that someone can fill that vacuum with some kind of sol solid action. Uh, and we also saw that during the U.S. election. We continue to see it right now in U.S. politics. You described the ensembling as being important. You, you're not taking any of these three strategies for identifying bots versus humans atomically. You are ensembling them together. That is what is so valuable about Facebook and Google and perhaps Twitter as identity platforms because you, you do so much through your Google accounts and through your Facebook account, that even if you took the most sophisticated replay attack, which is you, you know, let's say somebody had a piece of malware on my computer that was recording all of my Google actions, all of my Facebook actions, everything it was the panopticon into my browser, and they were copying everything that I could do. I'm not sure that they would be able to train something to operate convincingly like me or convincingly like a human in a way that Google would not be able to, to detect. Maybe they would. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure of that, but... Well, at I least it would, take a lot, it would take a lot more time and effort um, it, to, do, to do something like that than it would to, to, to do the more simple stuff that we're talking about. That's, that's right. And, and this is one of the things where I'm like, God, I love Facebook and Google and people who are afraid of surveillance for example, I'm like, okay, yeah, sure, surveillance is an issue. It's also an issue that I need to have some sort of way of verifying who I am in the digital realm. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, 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 ver and verifying others, you know? Like, if I'm engaging with somebody on Twitter, if somebody says, like, hey, I really didn't like your last podcast episode, I would prefer to know if that's a human or a bot, 
Right. I mean, of maybe so, maybe someday I'll have bots that are actually listening and studying what I'm doing, and they want to know the material. But um, so, talk about some of the techniques that you're using to study these political bots. That's a really great question. So we're using we're using mixed research methods to study bots. Um, we are we're not just using quantitative techniques, which is sort of what we've been covering. We're also using qualitative techniques. Um, at the moment, we're doing uh, a series of 10 case studies in collaboration with with Jigsaw. Uh, so it's both the Oxford Internet Institute, which is where I'm based and where the Computational Propaganda Project's based, but also uh, getting some help from, from uh, Jigsaw and Google to do research on 10 different countries and run a diagnostic on what the state of computational propaganda writ large looks like in those countries. So we're, we're looking at Russia, China, the United States, but then again, we're also looking at the Ukraine and Poland. Uh, we're looking at Germany because of the upcoming election. Um, and then we're also looking at Brazil and uh, Rwanda um, and a couple others. But the goal is to basically say, here's what, here, here is what, um, has been said. So to do content analysis of the media, uh, in each of those countries and look through all of the media reports that have said or alleged that there was automated attacks or that there was, you know, um, uh, computational spread of, of misleading information. And then to do a series of interviews, uh, at least 10 with experts on the ground or also and more, more, uh, more, importantly, I think, with the people who are building the bots. So we go into a country like Poland or a country like the Ukraine, and we use the context that we have built over the last four years to, to get in contact with the people who are actually building bots on behalf of political campaigns and talk to them about what their tactics are. And I think that human-centric uh, way of doing research, uh, of telling the stories of the actual software engineers and of like what they've done, why they've done it, who they've done it for, and all of that is actually a really important thing that has not been gotten at by a lot of computer science research. Um, and so that social science, that real time social science is, is pretty important. And then the, the other thing that we do is collect a bunch of data around particular issues. So say for instance, the German election, we just collected a bunch of data, uh, for the, the, the federal nomination process, the actual elections taking place later on, but the parties basically um, put their candidates up and we were able to collect a ton of data surrounding that and uh, and analyze it and create an analysis of like what what sorts of information were appearing, how how likely it was that the accounts were automated um, and then and then use all of our our qualitative and quantitative tactics for doing research to produce a holistic document. And and that's really the approach of, of our project at Oxford. That's that's how we do things. We don't we don't only do the quantitative or the big data work. We don't only do social science work. We do we do a combination of both. What is so terrifying about these bots is that they can muddy the waters of truth and, like you said, create confusion. I mean, you, like you, you, basically, the thesis that you described earlier was the goal of these bots is to create confusion so that maybe a political strongman or some somebody can come in with hard action because everybody's so confused what is the truth um what how has your i'm sure as you in i i totally love the approach of going in boots on the ground talking to these programmers hey why are you making a bunch of bots hey why are you writing uh, a selenium script to generate 
thousands and thousands and thousands of tweets from a Twitter account with Hillary Clinton with fire in her eyes um, and like, you know, red lighting all over the pit and just like these horrifying Twitter accounts. What is making you do this? So as you're talking to these people, you must be getting such a nuanced view about what is going on. I'm sure your views are so much more nuanced than what we see in, you know, the, 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 I hate to use the term mainstream news articles, but, um, (laughs) tell me, tell me some of the nuance, tell me some of the nuance, like this, what are you finding out talking to people or, or are the mainstream news articles getting it right? You know what? Like I, I, I hope that you're right that we we are a bit more nuanced. The goal of the goal of this work is is to provide more context, more nuance, and more honestly, more empirical evidence that this this is going on and and like about how this is going on. And so, uh, one of the the main things I would say is that there's a real misconception that that the use of bots to spread political propaganda only occurs uh, when political campaigns or politicians or states use use this method. In fact, on sites like Twitter, a lot of the time we see lone actors or groups of people spreading this information, people with some computer coding skills or even people with very little computer coding skills, but who have enough knowledge to use um, one of the automated uh, platforms for sending out their messages or sending out different things. Um, and so I think that that sort of like democratization of the way that information sharing goes on, but also the democratization of the ability to use automation to magnify a view is actually a really important thing that isn't often caught in media articles about this. Um, another thing is that uh, a lot of people who build bots on behalf of political campaigns do so purely because they are an employee of a subcontractor who works for that political campaign. Uh, some of them maybe don't have uh, a bias or a, an interest in the issue. Oftentimes, because this is a transnational phenomenon, we see that the people who are building or launching the bots or, or building or launching the information campaigns that go along with them are in other countries. So they'll be in India or they'll be in the Philippines or Russia. Um, and then they're they have complete disassociation with the with the information that's being spread, and I, I, you know, this lines up with the stories that BuzzFeed did about the Moldovan teenagers who spread fake news. Uh, you know, the 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 way that Twitter and Facebook exist, and Reddit, and and uh, Kick, and and Periscope, and all these other things, is that is is as international platforms for communication, and so. Um, any one person with a vested interest in in trying to manipulate the way that things go on can manipulate the flows. All of that being said, powerful political actors, whether it be governments or actors within governments, or whether it's intelligence services or uh, or or militaries, um, they have they definitely have a foot up on the regular Joe Schmo on the street because they have they have a few different things. They have a lot more money so they can scale a lot more. They have a lot more, uh, in the, in the areas of expertise, um, and, and, uh, other resources like that have to do with intelligence. And then they also have, you know, the the ability to, to use, to have the time to do this stuff. So their resource base is much bigger. And so when, um, 
a company, when, when a subcontractor that's working on behalf of the Russian government does something like this, as in uh, the company that Adrian Chen reported on in his piece, uh, The Agency in the New York Times Magazine, uh, you start to see more sophisticated attacks. You start to see uh, uh, more complex and much more confusing attacks. I, I believe all of that. I find all of that uh, to be tremendously plausible. Uh, there is another dimension to this that I want to discuss with you that I never hear people talking about. And it's one of these things where I don't know if I have a tinfoil hat on my head or if if I'm if I'm right about this. Software Engineering Daily has done numerous shows about advertising fraud. Anybody who's a regular listen, listener to this show knows that I believe advertising fraud is a huge problem and that nobody talks about it because it's within nobody's best interest to talk about it because it hurts. It would hurt the internet's income. Um, I can scrape the internet for a bunch of content, and I can make a site that looks plausible. Like, I can scrape the internet for recipes that are made with beef. I can set up beefrecipes.com. It's a WordPress site. It's got some just beef recipes that I scrape from the internet. And I can set up automated ads on that site using an ad network. And then I can pay for bot traffic to come to that site. And as long as I make more money from the ads than I lose from the bot traffic that I'm paying for, I have an arbitrage. And this is a huge arbitrage opportunity. It's really easy to make money from it. And I can pay for infinite bot traffic and make as much money as I want until I get caught. And from my analysis, there is a deep connection between advertising fraud and political bots. And the reason is that is that advertising fraud works better if you have some human traffic coming to your website. Because then you can launder the fake clicks using the protection of the real clicks. Because there's fake clicks going to every site. I mean, we, we all know that. The question is, what are the sites that have some human traffic going to them? And the more human traffic you get, the more fake clicks you can launder. So sites are, are incentivized to actually bring in some human traffic just to disguise an avalanche of fake traffic. And in order to bring in some human traffic, you need some plausible original material. You can't just get beef recipes because that's really obvious that this is a fake site. It was harvested from from information that's sitting around the web from from the internet you need some plausible yeah macedonian teenagers writing crazy stuff about hillary clinton uh you know turning babies into hamburger meat or something and and because that that plausible material turns out to be what some people categorize as computational propaganda or quote unquote fake news and that's where this circle becomes so profitable and so proliferate. And yes, we can talk about people subcontracting um, to to Indians or, or Russians or whatever to just make propaganda to shift public opinion. But it doesn't even have to be that malicious. You can just be looking to make money. You can be just be an ad fraudster. It's almost like the automated trading business. The automated trading business makes money as long as there's variance. They don't care if it's a huge up, uptick or a huge downtick. You're hedged on the upside. You're hedged on the downside. All you need is variance. The more variance, the better. 
Mm-hmm. And and that variance, you know, you're spot on there, and 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 you're also you're also really onto something with the connection between ad fraud and and uh, and what's going on with political bots. There's a deep connection there, and a lot of a lot of the use of political bots has grown out of out of the desire to create, you know, uh, to create income or to to pull wool over the eyes of 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 uh, the powers that be. Um, I think there's a couple things there. One is that. Uh, there's, there's, there's definitely, there's definitely people that have used bots to spread fake news stories, but then also had human interaction around those news stories. So the Denver Guardian, the whole thing that blew up during the election, uh, there was a guy that went on 60 Minutes recently, uh, on their fake news segment about how, you know, yeah, he had done all of this to make a dime. He'd, he'd tried to, he was making money. And, and in fact, he was feeling remorseful about the ways that this, this happened. Um, the other thing, which is building off of what you said about creating variance in traffic, uh, I think is something really important. I think that all of the fancy machine learning aside, uh, and you know, all of the, the innovations happening in an AI aside, if you just look at the ways in which the more sophisticated political bot or computational propaganda campaigns happen, then you start to see really quickly that it's never just bots alone that that create the more successful campaigns it's a combination of bots and humans together that drive a really successful campaign so uh it's you know it's important to note that nothing stops someone from signing into twitter on the bots account and you know generating some real tweets and and that does a couple different things one it it gives it it gives the 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 situation or the the account in question um more legitimacy uh, and also too, it has the function of, of getting around the, the algorithms that search for automated behavior. So it creates that variance that's needed that in order to have people interacting with the content. How much power does a Facebook or a Google have to stop computational propaganda? I think that social media companies, um, and, 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 and also, uh, search oriented companies, um, have a, a quite a bit of power. Um, I think that, you know, uh, if Twitter has the information about whether or not, uh, lots and lots of Russian accounts were used to spread information during the U S presidential campaign, for instance, that, 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 that they could share this and it could have a big effect on, on what we know about, uh, certain things. Whereas like, you know, if, if, if researchers are attempting to track IP addresses, they're, they're, work is is spotty at best because of the use of vpns and all sorts of other things uh i think also that 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 um companies can do something else which is they can have a degree of transparency about which accounts display a high degree of automation i know there's lots of good accounts out there i know that the new york times and, and the washington post and all of these other groups use automation to to get their tweets going but I think that there is a difference when it comes to uh, looking at a typology of bots, so looking at all the different types of bots. And if you look at the bots that are used to spread or uh, fake what's being called fake content or, or misinformation, then you're able to say, wow, uh, these accounts are only interacting around one, one topic. Uh, we should probably be flagging them as automated accounts just so people know. I think there's something akin to what like 
Wikipedia does with articles that haven't been written properly or need to be expanded upon that social media companies could do at the very least. I don't think it's enough for social media companies to, to be, or, or for companies writ large to be putting this upon the shoulders of civil society actors. So to be saying that it's the job of the AP or the job of CNN or of Snopes to be, be doing real time fact checking. I think that that's not very fair because the reality is that those civil society actors and even researchers like me do not have access to all of the information that the companies have access to. And I think the real crime and the, the real travesty lies in, in, you know, like not using that data in some ways for the benefits of democracy. Because if you're, if you're like me, I want to believe that, that social media and also all forms of new media can be used, uh, to benefit democracy. There's still aspects of them that are very empowering for, for freedom. But, uh, but if companies don't have some buy-in, then, then very little will happen. You work with Google on, their Jigsaw project. What is Jigsaw? Jigsaw is Google's uh, human rights-centered um, sort of think tank and incubator. So what Jigsaw does is builds tools that are informed by research uh, for communities that are facing things like censorship or attacks online. So it's, it's, Jigsaw is working to protect people. And it's it's a, it's a really interesting organization. It's actually not part of Google. It's actually a part of Alphabet, um, the larger Google ah, right. parent company. Um, and so it has a degree of autonomy there. Uh, and, and Jigsaw just released something, um, called perspective, which for instance, perspective is a, is a tool that detects hate speech in the comment sections. And, and for that, that tool, Jigsaw paired up with the New York Times, uh, and the Wikimedia Foundation and used a bunch of data to build a machine learning algorithm that, that pretty successfully detects, uh, hate speech on those in comment sections. So when I'm reporting on this advertising fraud stuff, it's such an uphill battle because nobody will talk about anything. And honestly, I think if people at Google could stop advertising fraud, they would. I think it's just a problem that's like too hard to stop, and I don't think anybody's willing to admit that. Like, yeah, a uh, giant CPG company, we actually can't tell you how many bots saw those ads that you ran on our ad network. Uh, so it's like really hard for anybody to talk about, and obviously the media companies don't want to talk about it because they already have you know enough problems shifting to the digital age. Um, but Jigsaw. I mean, in an ideal world, the people in the jig in Jigsaw would be, like you said, segregated enough from the Google cash cow to actually research advertising fraud, to talk about it some. Have you had any conversations with people at Jigsaw about ad fraud? You know, I haven't. Um, my work has been more uh, focused on sort of the things that we've talked about. Uh, obviously, I was I was brought on as a fellow there to think about bots and automation. Um, but I'm sure that, that, you know, there's folks at Jigsaw that are thinking about this. They have a fantastic team of some really smart people. Um, my purview is quite narrow there. And mm, so okay. I can't really speak beyond what, what goes okay. on with, with my own research. I understand. Um, what about ISIS? So ISIS is harnessing the internet or something. I, I don't know exactly what they're doing, but are they using political bots or are they just using like 
you know, making YouTube videos and communicating with people over Signal or something? Uh, no, I think that that uh, that terrorist groups have certainly made use of of bots and and of political bots. Um, I think that there's been a big onus upon social media companies and and on uh, states to detect and get rid of content related to. Um, related to things like ISIS or groups like ISIS. So we've seen a lot more um, success with with the company, both the companies uh, and with governments in getting rid of terrorist-related information. Uh, I think that we're just starting to see a pickup on the broader question of, you know, automation being used to send out other types of political information. So, um, so yes... ISIS has used political bots, but uh, but I think that 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 they're being heavily heavily targeted and um, and brought under control in in many ways. You're saying the ISIS bots are being heavily targeted? Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that up until really recently, it's been the last couple years has been there's been a focus from the social media companies on specifically on terrorist related speech or extremist speech, uh, and now. Now there's there's starting to be a pivot that says, of course, extremist speech is really important, and it's important if terrorists are using automation to scale up their efforts. Uh, for instance, ISIS used this app a while back that's since been gotten rid of, called the Dawn of Glad Tidings app, that basically took control of people's social media accounts that were sympathetic to ISIS and used them to create the illusion of of solidarity or to to tweet out things that ISIS wanted parroted, um, but. But now the shift has been to to actually discussing computational propaganda more broadly and the ways in which people manufacture consensus or manipulate public opinion using bots uh, at an electoral level or during security crises and all sorts of other things. ISIS seems like a useful thing to study because... If you look at ISIS as the base case for a kind of political bot that we just want to completely silence, completely obliterate from the internet if we can, you can study the techniques that are successful in obliterating it and then think about what are the ways to use those in more subtle uh, fashion to subdue, uh, you know, uh, these these more, I mean... These, these bots, you know, Twitter, Twitter's, I, I would say Twitter's doing like a, they're doing an earnest job, like trying to subdue these, these bots without subduing the free flow of information. I, I think, like, I, I am, you know, I'll applaud Twitter, you know, um, but, it, but is that, is that, um, does that sound like a reasonable strategy? Or like when you're thinking, because you're, you're obviously studying this stuff right now, and you're, you're keeping an open mind. I'm sure you are starting to think of strategies or maybe you've already thought of some strategies for like what are the best ways to subdue these forces and can't and and i guess like can you use isis as the base case that you can induct upon and figure out more complex strategies for subduing these these problematic bots i think that that's that's a really interesting idea i think that that using case studies uh, whether it be isis or whether it be uh, you mentioned ad fraud earlier as a as a basis for looking for the types of bots that are in action or the ways of of um, policing accounts i think that there's something that's that's definitely uh, 
definitely true there. Um, I think that what needs to happen though is that, that people, you know, the research has to be done in depth about the ways in which, you know, ISIS driven accounts or ISIS driven content differs greatly from other content. Um, I think there's something else, which is, is kind of a larger point, um, is, is that, uh, that this is contextual to political events in different countries, right? We, 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 and that's not to say that you can't build a tool that, that polices content or that you can't develop some software that gets, gets rid of or identifies bots on a platform. But it is to say that, uh, the ways in which attacks happen or the ways in which computational propaganda happens in the United States might look a little bit different from, from the way that it happens in Indonesia or the way that it happens in Australia. And so we need to be, we need to be really cognizant of, of the generalizations that we, we do make when we develop these tools. And, uh, we need to be quite secure in, in the, uh, typologies we build of bots because when we, when we build a typology and we say these are the types of bots that are used to spread propaganda or that are used to spread, um, hate speech, that, that they do have some crossover from country to country. And I think that that, that, that definitely is the case. Um, and I think that it is the case that accounts that have been automated that have been used by ISIS do mirror a lot of the, the tactics that are used by accounts that come out of Russia or accounts that come from actors within America. Um, there is, there is certainly transnational information flow on how these bots get built. Um, but yeah, I think that, that research and nuance, that's, that's sort of the place of where, that's the place where I hope, I hope that, you know, my work and research can, can help. People often talk about Twitter bots. They don't talk as much about Facebook bots. And my theory is that it's not that Facebook is necessarily better at policing bots than Twitter. It's that Facebook allows you to curate your network and build a more insular worldview more easily. So you don't see those bots, but they are on Facebook. Do you find that theory plausible or is there some bigger moat that Facebook has against bots? I think that the moat that Facebook has is, is the struct, the network structure. I think that Facebook and Twitter look completely different. Twitter, Twitter has, you know, in some ways done, done something that's fairly applaudable in creating a fairly open and democratic platform where, where the APIs are open and where anyone can really build software and launch it within the, within the platform. If they stay within certain parameters, Facebook, uh, and, th but then also Twitter, you follow people you don't know, to put it simply, uh, and, and you follow all sorts of different people. On Facebook, you only really follow people you know or you know through a friend. Uh, and, but then also Facebook has done more to, to limit the ways in which, uh, software developers can interact with the, the platform. I had, Brad Stone on the show recently. He's, I think, senior editor at Bloomberg, and he's like in he's the head of Bloomberg Technology um, the reporting. And we we were talking about how there are more news sources than ever before. So power is no longer centralized in the esteemed institutions. You can get your news by just reading the Washington Post or the New York Times or Fox or Wall Street Journal, or you can scroll through your Twitter feed, you can look at Facebook, you can look at Hacker News, you can synthesize a viewpoint 
from a wide array of individuals and news sources. So the news has become decentralized. And and I said that to Brad, and I was like, I love it. I mean, I love being able to dip my toes into the cesspool of bots and angry people that is Twitter, and to look at Google News and see you know articles from the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal, and I love to dip into Facebook and see somebody I know who has shared something from BuzzFeed. I would never go to BuzzFeed.com, I don't think. Well, maybe I should go to BuzzFeed.com. It's probably fine. It's probably great. Um, but Brad was describing this as completely exhausting. And and by the way, this is the this is the ecosystem that has allowed me to build a podcast by myself and actually get traction. It seems great, but do you find it exhausting? Are things better than ever before because there has been because there are so many news news sources, or is it now worse? Is it now just completely confusing, uh, and there's no centralized view of the truth, or are we in some fluctuative point? that is going towards an area of more stability. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? I think that we're in flux. I hate to be the academic that qualifies what you just said, but I'm going to qualify it. I think that there's there's certain benefits to having uh, a really diverse information ecosystem and for people uh, you know, to be able to access all sorts of different types of information. I think that the reality is a bit more, uh, a bit more nuanced. I think that people... People tend to only really engage a lot of the time with, with the same websites over and over and over again. I know that, that, uh, people I know very well, people in my own family, um, you know, when they get on the internet, they access the same five or 10 sites. Uh, this isn't to say that the filter bubble, uh, as it's called, or, uh, or homophily is what academics call, you know, sort of birds of a feather flock together. They, they go to the same websites in this context. Uh, it's not to say that it, it is all encompassing. I don't think that that's true. And the research that I've seen doesn't, doesn't bear that up. Um, and so I think that, I think that there, there, there are certain democratic be- benefits to having lots and lots of different sorts of information. But I think that we're sort of going through, uh, uh, some growing pains here. Um, the internet was scaled so fast and has happened at a, at a, and, and the spread of the internet has happened at an exponential rate. Um, far beyond what we've seen with other technologies that are similar, uh, which, which, you know, you can't really point to anything. If you're talking me- media talk technologies, it's been an exponential growth far beyond even the media technologies that we've had that have been developed in the last 50 years, like the television. And so I think that because the information landscape is getting more and more complex, I think that that the way that people confront it and deal with it is is also getting more complex but I think that there's there's a move towards simplifying this going on, and I, I think that you know things like fact checking are are, in, are really important. I also I also think that um, people being in a sense accustomed to the confusion that different sources of information generate is is something else entirely. Um, and I, I think that other people, uh, for instance, Dana Boyd just wrote a wrote an article. Dana Boyd of Data and Society wrote an article about uh, media learning and and talking about about the need for critical thinking and and media um, media think media based thinking. So getting people to actually think in depth about the media which they consume. So I think there's there's sort of like there's sort of a couple things at play. There's there's both technical 
sort of solutions for addressing this problem. There is definitely software that we can build that can do fact checking or that can identify bots. But there's also all sorts of, of social things that need to happen as well, which, which involve teaching people about the way that this media flow happens or, or integrating critical thinking into education at an earlier age. And sure, like, I think when, when people bring up, um, media education, it, uh, they, they kind of get slapped down and said, well, the education system is as bad as it is, but it has to start. We have to start somewhere. Um, and so, so I think that, that coming at this problem, the problem of computational propaganda from multiple angles is probably the best way to deal with it. I don't think that, that a technology based solution is going to be the, the main fix on its own. I don't think that a social solution on its own is going to be the main fix. I think that both of these things have to come together and, uh, in order to create some kind of real change in the way that people approach this and the way that they consume this information. Did you mention just now that the filter bubble has not been borne out in your research? You've looked at it and you've said, no, there's not a filter bubble? No, I'm saying there's differing opinions on, on the ways in which the filter bubble plays out. So I'm saying that, I'm saying that, sure, there's, there's plenty of research out there that shows that, that, uh, people do consume the same, the same news over and over and over again. And oftentimes the, their consumption of that news results in them seeing the same stuff on social media sites. However, there's, there's research from, groups like the uh, social media and politics lab at New York university that shows that the ways that we think about uh, things like the filter bubble uh, should be more nuanced that actually the ways in which these information flows go are, are more complex. And so there's a guy at, at that, uh, what they call the SMAP lab at NYU named Joshua Tucker, who's actually done some, some amazing recent work on this question of, of, information flows and the ways in which people sh share information and, and, and kind of, you know, uh, kind of challenges the, the state of thought that says, yes, um, unequivocally people only look at the same information over and over and over again. That said, there's also research by, um, by folks like Shanto Iyengar at, at, uh, Stanford's communication department that, that does show that there is a massive amount of echo chamber going on online and, and that we should be concerned. So, uh, I think that, that the reality lies in the middle, that there's some degree of it, but that it's not always the case. Um, and, uh, I think that it, again, um, it's contextual to the social situation and the social group in question. Uh, and that that's something that, that oftentimes gets glossed over in the need to create a fairly black and white picture. Let's close off with just, do you have any like crazy stuff that you've seen recently as you, because whenever I look into deeply into this like bot space, I'm like, I just see the weirdest things, whether it's like, uh, you know, somebody, you know, uh, I don't know, Pizzagate's the first thing that comes to mind, but like, there are so many weird things. I mean, I, I remember reading this article recently that was like, oh yeah, 4chan is deeply involved in this mess of bot content. I don't know. Tell me something weird or unexpected that you've seen <laughs> recently studying this stuff. Yeah, I think that that, that looking at the chans, uh, so 4chan but also 8chan, is, is, uh, is, is definitely something where you'll find surprising information. Um, there, there's work that's being done at the Data and Society Research Institute, but also by our own project, looking at the ways that, that, uh, you know, sort of 
um, other groups online, like groups on 8chan have, have been fundamental in the spread of, of different memes, um, that have, you know, really gone viral online that are political. Uh, and, and, uh, there's a, there's a sort of a show I think that Vice did. It was something called something like the trolls among us, um, that, that got really deep into this stuff. Uh, the other thing that I think is really, really kind of, interesting though not as not necessarily crazy or uh, super surprising but something that people should really focus in on if they're going to research or look into this more deeply is is sort of the human element um there's always a person behind the bot you know it's really easy for us to sort of disassociate the fact that like people are using bots as a tool they are a software tool that allow these people to spread their their own ideas and that I think the future, and by that I mean, you know, the next year or two are, uh, is not going to, the future of computational propaganda that is in the next year or two is not going to be dictated necessarily by machine learning or sophisticated ways of doing individual political marketing. I think that it's going to be a lot more focused upon the use of, uh, sort of cyber, cyborg technology. So using, uh, uh, cl- combination of humans and automation to attempt to reach voters or attempt to, to manipulate opinion. Um, and so I think that that's, that's sort of where things are going that you have, you have a bot that's running, but you also have a, a team of people that are around to really moderate what the bot does and says, and also to engage with people, other human beings once the bot makes contact. Well, um, we'll conclude our episode of science fiction engineering. <laughs> Daily. I mean, seriously, I seriously like the, I can't imagine somebody can write science fiction that is more compelling than what's going on in our actual world today. (laughs) I I know. You just read the the news and it's more entertaining than any science fiction book that can be written. Yeah, you know, I actually just read a uh, a new article out in Vanity Fair by Mike Mariani. I chatted with him about uh, the the article before he wrote it, but he he actually wrote that there's a propaganda book uh, written by a Russian fellow with a pseudonym about how the new world war is going to be a confusing one. And it turns out that the guy that wrote the book is actually an advisor to, to Putin. So uh, maybe we need to go there and read that book to figure out like what the propaganda of the future looks like. Okay. Well, uh, if you ever come out with a with another or a new report or if you have some, some kind of, uh, I don't know, capstone on your recent research or something, you're well going to come back on because this is a really interesting conversation. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been great. 